Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is Agent Stone, and you're listening to X-Files Truth. Why would he write the character for Ghost on the inside of the crematory oven? I don't know. Death is nothing to be feared. What about the guards seeing three figures that seem to vanish without a trace? It calls in your way. Something. What's he say? He said, the game's not over. So now we're chasing ghosts? Who are you going to call? The truth is out. Welcome back to X-Files Truth. Today's file is Hell Money, not Jose Chung's from Outer Space like I said last week. File number, classified. The plot. In San Francisco's Chinatown, a Chinese immigrant, Johnny Lo, makes his way to his apartment. There he's confronted by someone telling him to pay the price, and he's overtaken by three figures wearing Shigong masks. A security guard later finds the three figures near a crematory oven where Lo is being burned alive. Mulder and Scully investigate Lowe's death, the latest in a series of fatal incinerations in Chinatown. Mulder believes that ghost activity is behind the deaths, while Scully suspects a cult. The agents collaborate with Glenn Chow, a Chinese-American detective with the San Francisco Police Department. Detective Chow. Glenn Chow, Agent Mulder. Hi. Hi. What do you got? There's something written up here on the ceiling. I was wondering if you could read it. says Gwaii. It means ghost. Ghost? Does that mean anything to you? I don't know, but it's something strange for a man being burned alive to write, don't you think? Hmm. What's this? Does anybody recognize this? Looks like some kind of foreign currency. It's called hell money. It's used as an offering during the Chinese festival of the hungry ghosts. Is it worth anything? It's not money, per se. It's a symbolic offering to the evil spirits and the ghosts for good luck. Where would I get this hell money? Well, there aren't a whole lot of places in Chinatown that sell it. It's good. Maybe we just found a way to identify the body. When they find a Chinese character written inside the oven, Chow translates it as meaning ghost. Mulder also finds a scrap of burnt paper in the ashes which Chow identifies as hell money, a symbolic offering to deceased spirits. The agents locate Lowe's apartment where they find his collection of charms as well as bloodstains underneath the recently installed carpet. Meanwhile, another immigrant, Sin, tends to his leukemia-stricken daughter, Kim. To pay for her treatments, Sin attends an underground lottery in which participants either win money or lose an organ depending on tiles chosen from a pair of bases. 
One man wins the lottery, but selects a bad tile, and his body is found later that day. Scully performs an autopsy and finds that he had been selling body parts, noticing his numerous surgical scars. The agents question Chow, who claims that the local community maintains a code of silence and does not reveal anything to even him. Chow finds information that leads them to Sin, who installed the carpet in Lo's apartment. Sin has a bandage over one eye, having lost it to the lottery earlier. Returning to his home, Chow is confronted by the three masked figures. The agents visit him at the hospital. Meanwhile, Sin visits the hard-faced man, one of the proprietors of the lottery, wanting to end his participation. The man warns him that ghostly fire will consume him if he leaves the lottery. The agents return to the hospital, finding Chow gone. They trace his blood to that on the carpet in Lo's apartment, finding a match. This causes the agents to visit Sin, but find only his daughter at the apartment. The agents find Chow outside a nearby Chinese restaurant and follow him inside. Sin wins the lottery, but selects the tile representing his heart. Chow comes in and knocks over the table with the vases, revealing the lottery to be fixed. Mulder and Scully stop the hard-faced man seconds before he's about to operate on Sin. Hands in the air! Hands in the air! He's still alive. What did he say? He said... The game's not over. They interrogate him, but no one who participated will testify against him. It's unlikely he will be prosecuted. My people live with ghosts. The ghosts of our fathers and our fathers' fathers. They call to us from distant memory, showing us the path. No ghosts call to those men. You did by preying on their hopelessness and their desperation. Yes, they were desperate. Just as I was desperate when I first came to this country. But I committed no crime. You cheated them out of life by promising them prosperity when the only possible reward was death. In my belief, Death is nothing to be feared. It's merely a stage of transition. But life without hope? Now that's living hell. So, hope was my gift to these men. I don't expect you to understand. I understand this. You are going to prison for a very long time. Sin is brought to the hospital and his daughter is placed on an organ donor list. Chow disappears, awakening in a crematorium oven before he is burned alive. Hand in your field report. 
And now for my field report for Hell Money. Hell Money's okay. It's not great. It's not a mythology episode. There's not a lot of, you know, paranormal activity going on. It's okay. It's watchable. But it's it's one of my least favorites probably from this season. Like I said, it's watchable. I'd probably give it a 6, 6.5 as a passable episode. But compared to other shows on TV, it's a little better. But it's still not great. It's probably like a 7 compared to TV, you know, other TV shows. But for the sequelizer, I guess you could say that there could be a sequel. It's probably good they didn't do one. But even though Chow dies, the hard-faced man is still alive and probably won't even go to jail. So you could do a sequel, but it has a medium potential for a sequel, I would say. But it's good they didn't do one. And like I said earlier, I mentioned that Jose Chung's From Outer Space was going to be this week's episode. I just had that episode on my mind, I guess. That one will be next month's episode. I apologize. Well, that's all I can think of for Hell Money. Like I said, it's passable. It's got some characters in it that actually wind up going on to, you know, bigger fame in other shows. Lucy Liu, the hard-faced man, was in Seinfeld as long as, a, as well as a bunch of other things. B.D. Wong, the detective, uh... Glenn Chow there, he was, you know, he's in a lot of things too, so. It had a lot of good actors, but, you know. Okay. That closes the file for Hell Money. So, pending any further evidence, this case, Hell Money is filed open. Now let's head down to the chem lab and see what Agent Angela has for us for the chemistry between Mulder and Scully for Hell Money. agents. There are a few, though not a lot, of minor standout moments between Mulder and Scully in Hell Money. In the first scene where they appear with the recently cremated alive body, Mulder seems to take the lead, asking all the questions while Scully just observes. At least at first, they're assuming somewhat different roles compared to what they've sometimes taken at the beginnings of other cases. They debate over why Johnny Lowe would have scrawled the Chinese character for Ghost on the inside of the crematory oven. Then they get into some talk about the nature of ghosts and spirits, during which Mulder goes, Who are you going to call? Obviously a Ghostbusters reference, which is pretty funny. I'd actually forgotten he said that in this episode until I rewatched it. Coincidentally, we're doing this podcast episode the same year that Harold Ramis passed away who's remembered as Egon Spengler from both Ghostbusters movies. He will be missed in the entertainment world. Anyway, I got off on a tangent a little bit. Scully later starts to autopsy the second corpse that turns up in Hell Money so far. The one stitched together like a jigsaw puzzle. Do you know how much the human body is worth, Mulder? Depends on the body. I don't know, a few bucks? How much? 
Look closely, and you can see that Scully briefly smirks at that answer. I've always thought, yeah, Mulder. Exactly whose body are you thinking of, buddy? I had to go there. Every so often, I just can't help myself. Scully makes that brief joke about the deceased leaving his heart in San Francisco, and they both briefly smile at that, though it soon turns to disbelief as the frog makes its unforgettable entrance into the scene. Later on, Mulder and Scully leave the apartment building where they and Detective Chow have just questioned his son about Johnny Lowe, without any success on that front. Mulder gets a bit startled when Scully gets in the car, and she jokes that he looks like he's seen a ghost. We're back to more ghost references, and it's kind of entertaining that while Scully doesn't believe in them, she can crack jokes at Mulder like this all the same. In this short scene, we also learn that Mulder isn't exactly a fan of firecrackers either. They do finally get somewhere in this case by talking to Kim, his son, and finding out the truth about the grisly gambling ring her father's caught up in. And it turns out, the game is fixed, and Chow has been bought. Mulder and Scully stop another organ harvesting on his son just in time. In the ending scene, when Scully questions the ringleader, this guy reminds me an awful lot of a Chinese version of the cigarette smoking man. Anyone else notice that? Scully says it best. He promised them prosperity through something that could only end in death. As opposed to Mulder asking all the questions about this case in the very beginning, it's now Scully doing the questioning. Just an observation I didn't notice that much previously in this episode. Anyway, regardless of how in sync their partnership is, in the end, they still run up against a wall of silence in this rather odd case. Until next time, this is Agent Angela. Counterintelligence. Inside information. This is Agent Stone with Counterintelligence. With X 3.19 Hell Money. Original air date March 29, 1996. Written by Jeffrey Vlaming. Directed by Tucker Gates. To them, I'm just as white as you are. Hell Money Fake Currency That Is Used As A Symbolic Offering Hell Money is a form of joss paper printed to resemble legal tender banknotes. This faux money has been in use since at least the late 19th century, and possibly much earlier. Early 20th century examples took the resemblance of minor commercial currency of the type issued by businesses across China until the mid-1940s. The notes are not an officially recognized currency or legal tender since their sole intended purpose is to be offered as burnt offerings to the deceased, as often practiced by the Chinese in several East Asian cultures. The identification of this type of joss paper as hell banknotes or hell money 
and singling them out is largely a Western construct, since these items are simply regarded as yet another form of Joss paper in East Asian cultures and have no special name or status. The word hell on hell banknotes refers to DU, or underworld prison, also underworld court. These words are printed on some notes. In traditional Chinese belief, it is thought to be where the souls of the dead are first judged by the lord of the earthly court, Yan Wang. After this particular judgment, they are either escorted to heaven or sent into the maze of underworld levels and chambers to atone for their sins. People believe that even in the earthly court, spirits need to use money. A story that says the word hell was introduced to China by Christian missionaries who preached that all non-Christian Chinese people would go to hell after death. The word hell was thus misinterpreted to be the proper English term for the afterlife, and hence adopted as such. Some printed notes attempt to correct this by omitting the word hell and sometimes replacing it with heaven or paradise. These particular bills are usually found in Joss Pak's meat to be burned for Chinese deities and usually have the same design as hell banknotes but with different colors. Despite looking like play money, hell banknotes are taken seriously by many people. There are several customs and taboos regarding their proper usage. It is highly offensive in all Chinese communities to give a hell banknote to a living person as a gift. When burning the notes, the notes are placed as a loose bundle in a manner considered respectful. Alternatively, in some customs, each banknote may be folded in a specific way before being tossed into the fire because of the belief that burning real money brings bad luck. While the custom of burning hell banknotes is legal and still commonly practiced in China, other quote-unquote vulgar burnt paper offerings for the deceased, including luxury vias, sedan cars, mistresses, and other messy sacrificial items, specifically including paper replicas of the drug Viagra, as well as models of karaoke hostesses and supergirls based on the hit TV contest Mongolian Cow Yogurt Supergirl, will, according to the Ministry of Civil Affairs, be subject to a ban from 2006 onwards to extinguish a feudal superstition. The Joss paper, also known as ghost money, are sheets of paper and or paper crafts made into burnt offerings which are common in various Asian religious practices including the veneration of the deceased on holidays and special occasions. Joss paper as well as other paper mache items are also burned in various Asian funerals to ensure that the spirit of the deceased has lots of good things in the afterlife. The most well-known Joss paper item among Westerners is the Hell Banknote, which, like worldly fiat currency, derives its value through the underworld banking institution that authorities its usage. Hell Banknotes are sent by living relatives to dead ancestors as a tribute to the King Yanluo for a shorter stay or to escape punishment, or for the ancestors to use themselves in spending on lavish items in the afterlife. Hell banknotes are also known for their outrageous denominations, ranging from $10,000 to $5 billion. The bills almost always feature an image of the Jade Emperor on the front and the headquarters of the Hell Bank on the back. Another common feature is that the signature of both the Jade Emperor and the Lord of the Underworld. Spirit money is most often used for venerating those departed, but has also been known to be used for other purposes such as a gift from a groom's family to the bride's ancestors. Spirit money has been said to have been given for the purpose of enabling their deceased family members to have all they will need or want in the afterlife. 
It has also been noted that these offerings have been given as a bribe to Yanluo to hold their ancestors for a shorter period of time. Venerating the ancestors is based on the belief that the spirits of the dead continue to dwell in the natural world and have the power to influence the fortune and fate of the living. The goal of ancestor worship is to ensure the ancestors' continued well-being and positive disposition towards the living, and sometimes to ask for special favors or assistance. Rituals of ancestor worship most commonly consist of offerings to the deceased to provide for their welfare in the afterlife, which is envisioned to be similar to the earthly life. The burning of spirit money enables the ancestor to purchase luxuries and necessities needed for a comfortable afterlife. Organ trade is the trade involving inner human organs, such as the heart, liver, kidneys, etc., for organ transplantation. There is a worldwide shortage of organs available for transplantation, yet commercial trade in human organs is illegal in all countries except Iran. The problem of the illegal organ trafficking is widespread, although data on the exact scale of the organ market is difficult to obtain. Whether or not to legalize the organ trade and the appropriate way to combat illegal trafficking is a subject of much debate. In the 1970s, pharmaceuticals that prevent organ rejection were introduced. This, along with a lack of medical regulation, helped foster the organ market. Living donor procedures including kidney, liver, cornea, and lung transplants. Most organ trade involves kidney or liver. Despite numerous past failures in organ trades due to lack of contractual and or safety regulation, Robert Truog of Harvard Medical School Department of Social Medicine addresses the lowered safety risks and transplant procedures with available modern medical technology, along with increased regulation and contracting of organ transplantation for individuals with more government interventions. According to the World Health Organization, illegal organ trade occurs when organs are removed from the body for the purpose of commercial transactions. The WHO justifies these actions by stating that payment for organs is likely to take unfair advantage of the poorest and most vulnerable groups, undermines altruistic donations, and leads to profiteering and human trafficking. Despite these ordinances, it was estimated that 5% of all organ recipients engaged in commercial organ transplant in 2005. Research indicates that illegal organ trade is on the rise, with a recent report by Global Financial Integrity estimating that the illegal organ trade generates profits between $600 million and $1.2 billion per year with a span of over many countries. Criminal networks increasingly engage in kidnapping of people, especially children and teens, who are then taken to locations with medical equipment where they are murdered and their organs harvested for the illegal organ trade. Poverty and loopholes in legislation also contribute to the illegal trade of organs. Poverty is seen in all countries with a large black market for organs. Legislation is another contributing factor in the illegal organ trade, especially legislation with loopholes. For example, India's Transplantation of Human Organs Act requires that an organ donor must be a relative, spouse, or an individual donating for reasons of affection. Other claims of affection are unfounded and the organ donor has no connection to the recipient. Monetary transactions for organs are illegal in India currently, but there are no laws concerning funds given to a spouse. The spousal inclusion provides a loophole for illegal trade. In some cases, organ donors marry the recipient to avoid legal penalty. The international community and national governments have been trying to find stable ethical systems to deal with the high demand for organ transplants. In 1968, the United States implemented the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act of 1968, which gave individuals the right to donate their organs after their death. Following 
the U.S. enacted the National Organ Transplant Act of 1984, which established a national online registry for organ donors and prohibited the buying or selling of organs in the U.S. The most recent efforts of the United States to combat high organ demand include the revision of the UAGA in 2006 and the 2007 Charlie W. Norwood Living Organ Donation Act. Though the organ and tissue donation market are highly regulated in the U.S., underhanded dealings between shadowy operations are not unheard of. It's illegal in the U.S. and most other nations to offer or receive compensation for an organ donation, but a black market for human organs does exist. Citizens of impoverished nations or regions are often tempted to sell one of their kidneys on the black market. In some cases, these entrepreneurial donors are recruited or learned through word of mouth and volunteer and flown to another nation where the organ is removed in a makeshift operating room. In 2003, an illegal kidney procurement network was uncovered in South Africa. The donors were recruited mostly from the slums of Brazil, flown to South Africa where the operation was performed, compensated between six dollars and $10,000, and returned home. The South African middlemen were then able to sell the organs for as much as $100,000 in the United States, black market for human tissue. It usually involves bodies about to be cremated. A black market broker may enter into a financial agreement with a criminally-minded funeral home director and carve up the bodies before they're cremated. Falsified papers such as consent forms and death certificates are produced, and the tissue can then be sold to an American research facility. Sometimes the tissue may be from a body with an infectious disease, but is sold with documents that claim a different cause of death or medical history. Illegally obtained tissue from just one cadaver has been known to reach 90 tissue recipients. Even though the game in this episode was entirely fictitious, many people thought that the game was real, a fact that story editor Frank Spotnitz found interesting. This episode's screenplay was later adapted by writer Ellen Stiber and was released as Hungry Ghosts, the ninth book in the X-Files Young Adult series. So for now, I'd say that this case is open. So the final word on Hell Money, you have to keep playing. What's out there for Hell Money? Highlights from the first review I pulled are from the AV Club. The idea of a gambling ring that plays for body parts is one that instantly draws the viewer in, because it plays on any number of very basic fears and horrors. And while it's not a natural idea for an X-Files episode, it is executed with a kind of panache. The episode was also fairly bold for its time, providing a whole subplot that's mostly told through subtitles. Post-Lost, this seems completely natural in genre TV, but at the time, it was a pretty big step. And yet, Hell Money can never overcome the fact that it feels like a series of shocks that are strung together along a pretty standard story setup. 
The X-Files always excelled at presenting communities that were a part of the larger American community, technically, but were simultaneously completely separate from it. It's the element of the show's DNA that has the most in common with CBS crime procedurals the series would heavily inspire. I think the major problem with Hell Money is that it feels, at times, like a backdoor pilot for a new series, starring B.D. Wong as corrupt detective Glenn Chow. Considering the episode ends with Chow dying in a crematory oven, this definitely isn't the case. But so much time is spent on him, and on the game, and on the Hassin family, that it seems like Mulder and Scully are more or less just there to watch all the craziness unfold around them. From the little research I've been able to do, it seems that episode writer Jeffrey Vlaming had hoped this would be a more Scully-friendly episode than some of the others in Season 3. A chance for her to crack a case that was mostly non-supernatural in nature, despite the overtones of Chinese mysticism, but the episode ends up being kind of a wash in this regard. Too many of the Chinese characters are outright scumbags or simply there to introduce some weird overtones of mysticism to the proceedings. Though I have to admit, those masked dudes are very, very creepy. And the very act of setting a story like this in part of the country where the dominant population is full of foreign-born residents rides right up against the line of what's acceptable and not stereotypical, since the famous stories about people getting their organs removed always takes place in foreign countries. There's a thinly disguised overtone of invasion throughout the episode that ties into these urban legends. And while I'd say the episode thwarts it in the end, thanks to the portrayals of the Sins and Wong, who simply essays a corrupt cop like any other, it's a near thing for much of the runtime. But there's still quite a bit to enjoy in Hell Money all the same. As I said above, those men in masks are such a great image that they pop up all over the Season 3 DVD, even as this isn't one of the more fondly remembered episodes. The scene where the frog emerges from the corpse is a great gross-out moment. And, as mentioned, the whole idea of the game you play with your body parts on the line is kind of genius. This is another one of those episodes I don't find as memorable as some others. Though it is somewhat of an improvement compared to its Jaguar spirit and immediate predecessor. Of course, with the exception of the frogs sewn up in the corpse. Whoever first thought of stitching live animals into a dead human body as a squirm-inducing scene is kind of a twisted genius, in my opinion. I've seen it in several other TV shows since The X-Files, and it has the same effect. On rewatching Hell Money, I can see where there could be some underlying threads of xenophobia. Despite his being a corrupt cop, I can't help but feel a little bad for Detective Chow when he makes the ABC, American-born Chinese, comments, because he is between two cultural worlds, but can't ever really fully belong to either one of them. The next review I picked is posted on the Daily Drew blog. This episode seemingly never gets around to introducing any supernatural element. This is also another episode where Mulder and Scully pretty much completely fail to make any kind of difference. In a show like The X-Files, both of these are dangerous. We've seen that it's possible to do an effective story without supernaturalism, and it's possible to do an effective story where the heroes fail, but both are tricky to get right. Doing both in the same episode strikes me as unwise. But there is a way of reading the series that allows us to fold this episode more naturally into what we usually expect, though it's arguably problematic. For me, 
The point is his son and his daughter Kim, played respectively by Michael Yama and Lucy Liu. With this thread of the story, we get to explore the compassion and desperation that would lead a man to get involved in such a macabre undertaking in the first place. This is where the episode really lives and breathes. And this leads me to think that this story might have been a good deal stronger if it wasn't expected to bring Mulder and Scully into it. On the other hand, if this wasn't an episode of The X-Files, what could it possibly be? I think it's fair to say that I appreciate this episode a lot more than I like it. I like the boldness with which it tells such a gruesome story, and the lack of any genuine supernatural element enhances this considerably. But as an episode of The X-Files, it's peculiar unsettling, and rather difficult to like. I really like this review for pointing out the very human and sympathetic story of his son and his daughter, concerning just how far he'd go to try to save her from a serious medical condition, no matter how high the cost for himself. And I've got to say, in the years since this X-Files episode, it's now very cool to see this early appearance by Lucy Liu. Since she'd later go on to an evilly fantastic performance as a deadly viper assassin in Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill. I'm also a huge fan of that movie. Love it. So I couldn't go without mentioning that. If you'd like to read the full versions of both these reviews, check out our show notes page at xfilestruth.com. Profiles. But these aren't humans, Profiles in character. From the look of it, I'd say they were alien. This week's profile, Detective Glenn Chow, as portrayed by B.D. Wong. Detective Chow is seen in this week's episode, Hell Money, and is introduced to Agent Mulder by Neary, who is of Asian descent and translates the writing as the Chinese word for ghost. Mulder also finds a small scrap of paper among the oven's ashes, which Chow explains that the paper is hell money, a symbolic offering to the spirits during the Chinese festival of the hungry ghosts. Mulder suggests that it may help them identify the victim. Later in the episode, the agents meet Detective Chow outside of Lowe's apartment. Chow tells the agents that he is perplexed by the meaning of the white lettering on the apartment door. Inside, Mulder notes that the apartment's carpet has been newly installed, but shabbily laid. Scully opens a drawer to find Chinese herbal medicine and a dried frog, both of which Chow identifies for her. He adds that frogs are occasionally used as charms for good health, prosperity, and protection. Mulder then announces that he has discovered bloodstains beneath the carpet. Chow, Scully, and Mulder browse through a Chinese apothecary whose herbal contents Scully is entirely unfamiliar. The investigators question Dr. Wu, an Asian lady who is the store's proprietor, and Chow acts as a translator. Dr. Wu identifies the herbal medicine found in Lo's apartment as skullcap root and Chinese angelica, 
which Chow adds are both used as painkillers. Upon viewing a hand-drawn rendering of the characters on the door of Lo's apartment, Dr. Wu adopts a fearful expression, mutters in Cantonese, and hurries away. Chow explains that Dr. Wu had said that the apartment had been branded a haunted house, which relates, like the hell money found earlier, to the Festival of the Hungry Ghosts. As Chow continues to tell the agents more about the festival, the wiry man is drugged, drinking a warm liquid as he sits on a chair under a bright light. He sees apparitions of ancient Chinese figures, one of whom seemingly removes the man's heart even as he watches. The agents ask Detective Chow about the festival as they walk down a street in Chinatown. The detective supposes that a connection between the recent murders and the festival would make sense as the festival is almost over. He also implies that he does not feel strongly for or against his ancestors' belief in the festival. At first, interrupting Chow from a phone conversation that he duly concludes, Scully and Mulder confront the detective about their findings of both the frog, which Scully believes probably contradicts Chow having earlier claimed that frogs are used as good luck charms, and the fact that the organs of the latest corpse had been harvested. The agents suspect Chow is being protectively secretive about the goings-on within the Chinese community, but Chow responds by explaining that he himself is an outsider from that community. He begins to lead the agents to the company that installed the carpet in Johnny Lowe's apartment. Mulder comes across one of the colored game tiles, and Chow talks with Sin's bedridden daughter, telling her what is happening. Mulder ends Scully's discussion with Sin, and the agents wait for Chow in the hall outside the apartment. The detective has a conversation with Sin, but once he follows the agents out, he claims he was merely warning him that a blocked-up black window in the apartment was a fire trap. Chow also says he does not recognize the game tile that Mulder found, although he does identify a character on it as meaning wood, and the agents agree that they should subsequently follow Sin's every movement. Meanwhile, Chow returns to his own home, an elaborate townhouse. He finds red Chinese signage painted on his front door and encounters inside a trio of individuals who wear the typical masks. Tired and jumpy, Mulder is conducting an uneventful stakeout of Sin's apartment when Scully arrives. She tells him that Chow has been attacked and hospitalized, so they leave. Mulder and Scully arrive in St. Francis's General Hospital only for Lieutenant Neary to inform them that Chow has already left without waiting to be dismissed. The agents talk with Neary while he fetches a medical chart on Detective Chow for Mulder's perusal. The chart shows that the blood found on the carpet padding in Johnny Lowe's apartment was actually that of Detective Chow. Mulder suspects that Chow was the person who asked for the carpet to be installed, suggesting a secretive connection between the detective and Mr. Sin. Furthermore, Mulder concludes that their conversation was not actually about a fire trap. The game continues, and the agents arrive outside the restaurant building where it is held, having been led there by a clue from the OPO staffer. They see Detective Chow enter the building just after their arrival. Despite trying to escape, Sin is again dragged to the back room, this time watched by Chow. The agents enter the restaurant, finding the ground floor to be darkened and deserted, but containing frozen human organs in the restaurant's kitchen. Chow, meanwhile, asks that the game be stopped, but when his request is strongly denied by a game organizer who reminds Chow that he has been paid well for protecting the game from foreigners, Chow angrily smashes one of the jade vases, revealing that it contained tiles of all the same color. As this proves that the game has been fixed, the crowd of participants storm the gaming room, noisily alerting the agents to their presence. 
In a room that contains a jarred frog, another operation is about to be conducted on Sin when he sees a vision of his daughter, of whom he begs forgiveness. Detective Chow interrupts the procedure and shoots the hard-faced man, but both the detective and the hard-faced man are then taken into custody by Mulder and Scully. The agents then meet up with Lieutenant Neary. Both he and Mulder let Scully know that they can't convict the hard-faced man without testimony from Chow, who has since gone missing. Unbeknownst to the agents and Neary, Chow is lying inside a crematory oven wherein he awakens and sees a blue-lit pilot light. He watches as the oven is turned further on and flames rise. A wall of the oven itself bears the Chinese character for the word ghost. Bradley Darrell, or B.D. Wong, was born October 24, 1960, and is an American actor who is best known for his role of Dr. George Huang in Law & Order Special Victims Unit, and also for his roles of Father Ray Mukata on HBO's Oz, and for his role as Song Liling in the Broadway production of Mim, M. Butterfly, as well as his portrayal of Howard Weinstein in the Father of the Bride movies. I need to run and never race I need a two-ton test I need to make a lot of mess I need to buy money, sell money, hell money Sell money, buy money, sell money, hell money yo. Buy money, sell money, hell money Sell money, buy money, sell money, hell money Have you checked your email? I found these in my email this morning and now the female with the emails, Agent Angela. Hey everyone, we've got an email from Jared Yeo. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Apologies if I'm not exactly. It's called Greetings from Singapore. Hey guys, I really appreciate the work being put in. I miss the days when the X-Files would air on TV when the internet was slower, and being online on my 56k dial-up modem also meant being cool. Keep up the great work. I look forward to every podcast. Cheers, Jared. Oh yeah, the days of dial-up. I remember I would usually log on and then cover my ears to try to block out that horrible screeching noise. Anyway, that's so cool to hear you're enjoying our podcast, all the way from Singapore. It feels like we're truly being heard across the nation and around the world. I just had to throw in that little coast-to-coast -coast AM reference while we're on the subject of retro. I miss having the X-Files on TV, too, and I know plenty of other files feel the same. But the fandom is still going strong. It's great to hear from you, Jared, and thanks for taking the time to write to us. Next up, we got a comment from Wasan Lu on our Facebook page that I wanted to read. It refers to Mulder and Scully's relationship but I think it could also apply to other aspects of the story arc as well. It says, It rings true to most TV shows there, but it was also a time of slow burn TV, when the audience had to be patient most of the time. Contrast to today's TV, everything is fast, and relationships are fast, which kind of feels like something special is gone, in my opinion. I think there's some truth in that. Put the X-Files against many shows on TV now, and with a few notable exceptions. There somehow just doesn't seem to be quite the same intrigue and intricacy. I'm not going to mention any other shows by name, because I know there are plenty of fans out there of those other shows as well. 
But I think it does ring true in many instances. Different time, different style, in a lot of cases. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us, Wesson. If you would like to leave us a comment or send us a message on Facebook, go to facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us at xfilestruth at live.com. Leave us a comment on our website, xfilestruth.com, or follow us on Twitter at xfilestruth. If you've been enjoying X-Files Truth, we'd also love it if you'd leave us a review or a star rating on iTunes. Thanks again to both of you for some terrific feedback. Until next time, the truth is still out there. Go find it. Next time on X-Files Truth. Flattered by the attention of one of her favorite authors, non-fiction science fiction novelist Jose Chung, Agent Scully discusses a recent case in the Pacific Northwest in which two teenagers mysteriously vanished, only to reappear with conflicting stories of alien abduction. that closes the file for hell money and happy 4th of July for everybody out there we'll see you guys the first Sunday of next month for Jose Chung's from Outer Space that one puppies I made this 20th century box Howard Weinstein Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.